So, okay, so, so uh, next we have. Let me just Ajit. say, okay, welcome everybody to well, our. I just want to take a second panel. here to see if we can make sure and that here you can we get have Josh is going to talk to us about outsourcing so energy market design. Oh, is it going? We're going to have Mark Winfield okay. talk to us about climate change, energy sustainability, Great. and federal oh, okay. And then Vanessa is going to speak to us about the hybrid climate change. Uh, well, so that's, we will run a little bit I just want to say so thank you so much for having uh, me and Sherry and Natalie for, person, but, you know, making this work um, hybrid so that I could be here Josh. and others. So it's it's okay. just like um, so wonderful to be here. Thanks so, very much uh, in these, for having like, me really here. Important, I'm really sorry uh, uh, not to be in person. So it seems my like a much more so exciting well place to be in group of people than Scottsdale, Arizona, the hotel I'm in now. But with that, I'm going to just talk for a few minutes. I guess I have about 20 minutes to have Q&A about a paper I've been working on for quite some time. I will just talk briefly about the background and motivation. This audience knows most of this. One, already, so there's not um, much. We know I'll because I quick. and others Talk for years the have been writing um, about preliminary the results. many, They're many ways like in which now, electricity you know, market rules going through consistently everything and, and pervasively we'll favor incumbent resources, um, especially fossil resources. Okay, so and we also slide, know please. because of and the work a lot of other people have done, so um, Shelly Walton, Dan Walters, okay, Ari so Pesco, this is, um, that you know, basically grid said governance is really, really prices. problematic. There are lots of carbon prices um, now. That um, that's true. Of course, there are that. Um, many of them are not control like, really strong the or, or cover entities in the United States that develop electricity market rules. So this paper, basically connects these two things. And it it, it first tries to provide the most um, comprehensive to my I'm knowledge. I'm sorry, I have lots of animation. Of so Natalie, this is going to be very annoying for you. And different electricity market advance. rules that um, can you, counteract Maybe the best thing is just to pull policies. up all of the, all of the text of that. that's on that slide. Uh, and then I won't but, have to keep but, saying But next. ultimately, I think the more important goal of the is paper there? is it tell. looks at it it provides okay. a history so, um, of why and how you know, really many briefly, of these we like these instruments and the we tend to like these because it gives a lot more flexibility to the market so the market ferrets out who the cheapest um, cost abater abaters are and those are the people who abate more than um, people for whom abatement is more expensive um, and of course it encourages beyond pollution reductions and as she talked about at length there's revenue recycling the long history of utility regulation has, and we can do the same thing where we just pull up everything on the side. In the United States, where utilities have things called filing rights. Okay, so. And so um, FERC and DOE problems, of course, do not are actually if you have really a market-based instrument, like this a, is the actually right a performance, market structure uh, performance in a mandate. series of cases uh, culminating you, you, in a case called it's, it's harder to FERC administer. You have to, it's, hard, it's more expensive to monitor than if you just say, hey, put a scrubber on top of your smokestack. So quite literally um, every you don't need those FERC you don't need to incur those administration costs because it's easier just to have a ban if you know it's very toxic or bad. promulgated by utilities and governance arrangements that were themselves written by utilities. There's also a host of moral objections that so we worry about hot spots for things that are um, less many of uh, firm these rules specific, and also um, more important but a little how also they went with into the, you know, so the way I want to organize and this the, talk is first I'll spend a few minutes of carbon tax. If you worry about distribution of concerns, that, so like are basically, is this going to be a regressive carbon tax? Are, this is why, of course, quite, British Columbia uh, like does, silly and shockingly, you know, a lot of these places try to use the revenue recycling impact to make the pricing instruments less regressive. 
but, but the, it is in fact uh, and then the second thing I want to do is, is go this, in detail um, about this, the, the sort of history of how we develop when you are RTOs, entering a market you are taking something sacred and you are making it and just another commodity that is bought or sold and therefore you reduce environmental care or the stigma to so pollution. So in PJM's transmission planning So Michael Sandel is the most famous person for having said this but lots of people have said it. I think Steve Kalman in the articulated this much more clearly than Michael Sandel before him that the governance um, but that system is the, did uh, not moral work, stigma or but ultimately it, it couldn't simply sit, um, sit not, not only the governance system, but who was on the okay, particular so committees that planned, I'm again, just trans, pulling up that all engaged of the, in regional transmission text, planning on behalf slide. of PJM. Um, I think and, I see it um, up in the in the, the room. The so there is said, some well, previous work on this. Um, if we don't do these, some of it this, suggests right like, exit. okay, this and is so now empirical work, that, trying to do a horse race between different types of regulations and seeing does it change the moral stigma of regulation. The regulation. The so there is some work that suggests that Looting under attacks from the fact that looks they less are bad than being um, fined. But of course, so there you're comparing a le like looting legally under the tax versus looting um, and being fined, so doing um, something illegal. So I don't think that's uh, like a really a apt comparison. So really, if, what you want to do is looting legally slides, under a tax uh, versus looting legally under a mandate. Nice How are those different versus violating both? Require. There's also um, a huge motivational that, crowding literature, but so that stuff usually tries to see the, the how do most any external incentives is, be um, you can understand rate regulation sorry, as, high, as price delegating to actually government mandates, how do they change internalized norms? And so they're not really doing the horse race so that we're part looking of the paper at. Looks at some of the ways There's some evidence against, so Lear Strahovitz has a paper, a nice paper looking at when San Diego changed its carpool lanes to say, okay, either you can't do solo driving and if you do, you get a fine to, okay, you can, now you should have to pay a fee in order to do this. That, so one example uh, is that Reggie, resulted in actually more carpooling and less cheating, but of course, uh, as they changed the system, system the this wasn't a randomized control experiment, um, and, and so like you Virginia can see that like more people Reggie, in San Diego may have moved Dominion, carpooling just because they were uh, learning more about the program okay, that, that this, was already this, in place. This, 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 this price, um, and there's this uh, really nice and interesting experimental game where in order to abstract away from pollution, these authors, Brad and Brecky and Rothberg, they created these harm-creating stickers that were essentially just externalities. But negative it was just, it just, it uh, it's a, I think the more interesting like example in rate regulation they found that it, uh, has to do with fuel adjustment clauses. Like people didn't so fuel mad, adjustment care about trading so much, which suggests, tariff, like, oh, there's not that moral stigma. Utilities, it, it did... Um, they date back to 1914. Like it, it suggested, but, like, oh, uh, they sort of there's not really much of a moral stigma uh, and difference. But they were evaluating trading and not actually the stickers. And so it seems like a bit of a different setup. To be passed on to captive rate payers. I, I think said, these okay, are not especially um, justified slide, in any situation. Let's look but at when, all of the reasons uh, why for example, this paying to pollute, this anti-commodification theory could work or couldn't. There's, uh, because I thought there might be reasons and it's now um, in also both directions. So on the one and hand, so what with expressive function of law, when the government is saying, "Look, let's use a mar let's use a market-based uh, instrument," for a, for, for that Kentucky could signal power, to people like this is, is not that, that important. This is a market frame, um, and so market, as a market frame, like maybe it's just not the pollution is not as bad or as harmful as we thought um, it was going to be. And so that it, would support it knows the anti-commodification rate. But counter to that, I think there are two potential impulses at least. So one is people might see a market-based tax or cap and trade instrument and see, "Oh, well, actually, this is." Because it's, um, this uh, is really a uh, bigger issue like than the government that. thinks it is. The, I think this is a fairly ineffective light instrument. These are, of course, Kentucky just lay intuitions. And so I, I'm happy to talk about, like, you know, it, 
truly like what are the differences the but market. the lay perception may be like this is not really a, um, a strong instrument so the government the, isn't so that's just fully the, capturing like how bad this of, is you know, so this about, is worse um, than they think it is gold plating that utilities I call that like inadequacy aversion and they, of course they, there's a lot they, huge they literature on taboo trade-offs where when people think that something sacred is being traded against secular values so the sort of canonical examples are kidney sales or sales of babies people feel more outraged and so everything around the system the becomes more tainted. Um, what I think and so, that's really interesting interestingly, is the, the, like, how utilities the thought that this um, is the wrong type of instrument could actually increase the moral stigma of pollution. Establish governance structures okay. in RTOs so next that, slide, that always favor their um, own resources. This um, is just so to uh, uh, introduce you, you know, to the way I, so I use structural equation modeling to, rules that um, talks about how capacity to think through, or to like analyze my data and see how like how these competing forces might be in effect. And this is just to introduce like the exact same ideas in a structural equation model path diagram. So you have the condition and that how does that affect There's moral stigma? I, and all of these I are posit that there are like, these competing paths. The expressive effect the, the might reduce moral stigma in line so with example, the anti-commodification theorists, the but it might also rule, increase, which, push to increase um, moral stigma like through an inadequacy aversion effect or a taboo trade-off moderation, which you can think of just as like an interaction effect. So for people for whom the environment is very sacred or who think market conclusions are very bad, they may be more likely to say, oh, this is really, really bad, and so they get, they, you see an increase in moral stigma for them, whereas if people think, like, oh, who cares about the environment, you might not see that that increase, and so it's just saying, like, it might be, there might be um, some population effects there. Okay. So, what did I do in the study? Uh, the next slide, please. We're basically it should be study overall, and then it goes down to participants' interdependent measures. PJM so, the question is: Do market-based regulations reduce the moral stigma of pollution? Because PJM I introduced uh, participants to a new pollutant, Maldine. I spent a ton, ton of time talking to ChatGPT uh, to come up with this fictitious name uh, like that has no actual, real, real-world. It's like that. It's totally a fake name. But it's like you know, evokes benzene and mal is bad. Um, so this, I made it relatively I think, light to touch, really, so it causes asthma and heart problems, and that's because I didn't want ceiling effects where um, participants said, oh, it's if it causes cancer and death, everyone's going to think it's bad no matter what, no matter it, what the regulatory framework is. The, the use and I ran this slide participants to four conditions, the control with no regulation, command and control mandate. Um, this was States a performance mandate lines because the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act are usually mostly performance mandates. Uh, a pollution tax or a cap and trade program, and wind to, just the canonical forms uh, of market-based instruments. Participants then answered these dependent measures, build, which I'll talk about in the next uh, slide and so mechanism if, questions. If I were on, I think a different slide. So, no, I think it's slide on the next slide. I don't remember. Um, I, oops. I would show that um, the so I have best several groups of key dependent measures. So the first was the US just um, transmission three, three overall moral stigma of pollution measures. So how, how morally bad do you think this is? That's moral stigma. How harmful do you think this is? That in all and of the last like, five years, um, the US how much? How likely are you to protest companies emitting malzine, limit your own activities that emit malzine, and do things like uh, sign petitions years, or protests for more regulation. The, um, so that's a composite variable for behavioral intentions. On and on this overall moral stigma measure, because of the competing effects I just talked about, I predicted in my pre-registration null um, effect or a very small interesting effect. Interesting about this is that um, and 
used the, to build like more economically large regional mean, projects meaningless until order number 1000. Another, order number 1000 was another, a 2011 um, measure I checked was, okay, corporation is polluting in compliance with the instrument. So in compliance with the mandate, with a set limit, or in compliance with the tax, or in compliance with the cap and trade program. And that Here, because I, I, I thought this was like a cleaner horse race than sort of what the previous studies had done. And also, it counters some of the anti-climate critique, which is basically like, oh, you would never allow people to pay to litter because there the critique of comparing a full-on ban to like a price-based instrument. And so I wanted to say, no, very cleanly, how does it, how does moral stigma compare if you're complying with the legal instrument or violating it? And compliance, competition I thought, okay, lines, actually here, I think it will look lines. better to be in compliance, uh, less moral stigma if you're under the mandate than the market-based instrument, because the mandate has a categorical, this is okay to pollute, whereas the market-based instrument doesn't have that. The second reason, so if you go to the next slide, this is what my sort of overall moral stigma theory is, but the slide after that, you'll see that expressive effect turns to blue if you're polluting in compliance, because here, both uh, for the uh, market-based instrument, the, they look worse for polluting compliance. They're still paying a tax or generators. paying for allowances under so the cap-and-trade system, um, whereas under the mandate, they're local not. Lines, you, you don't okay, so the next slide, um, finally, I also asked how, how good or bad does beta corporation look for polluting in violation of the instrument for the tax or the cap-and-trade. So that means polluting more than they paid they paid for. So it was equivalent. So everybody had paid for or was allowed to pollute pen for example, by um, the but ability we're polluting to sell 13 tons, tons. so in the mandate condition, that's just more than the limit, and in the tax and cap and trade pollution, that's three tons more than they were paying for. Is quite Here, I didn't have a prediction so, because so, I thought they, were, um, they might be competing effects, and so I just said, okay, I, I just want to ask um, But the, the idea is that uh, okay. utilities, if they um, can, would rationally uh, prefer small slide. lines because so I should be under study administration. higher bids in the energy market. And then the third reason, there's a huge literature of which I've been a part of. Applied to the time sharing experiments for social sciences program, which peer reviewed and then accepted the, the, to run the study, which means they paid for all fifty thousand dollars worth of the study, which is great. So thank you very much, Tess. Um, I pre-registered it, and then NORC ran the study. Um, this past fall but, using its Ameristate uh, panel. It actually, you know, um, it's a probability-based panel that targets a demographically representative sample in a much is that, um, much more rigorous way than I can do using prolific or enter. Um, I got of way over 2,400 participants. In the end, we targeted so 2,300. Um, what did I learn? From okay, so if you go to the next slide and pull up all the animations, there should be like the three same boxes. Uh, you don't, um, there is no set So as predicted in the cap versus mandate um, comparison, uh, so, there was so no difference in any of the moral stigma measures. In the, US, the, um, in the tax versus mandate, the tax looked actually somewhat morally worse than the mandate, but it was a very small difference. It wasn't something that I felt no was economically so meaningful. This um, creates a situation and which a counter to the anti-commodification critique. Utilities have um, as an predicted, to for compliance morality, polluting under the tax or cap was much morally worse than under the mandate, and, and it was also worse to violate the tax or cap than to violate power. the mandate. And they get to do so without undergoing um, any regulatory If you go to the next review. slide, you can just so, see so these confidence intervals for the main differences. Might so on the left panel is the mandate versus tax, and the right panel is mandate versus the cap and trade. You can see the three overall moral stigma measures, just straight moral stigma, harm, and behavior. 
you can see, so the question was asking, how morally bad is it? Uh, how morally bad is so, um, malazine pollution? How harmful is malazine pollution? How likely are you to take these actions? And so you can see that the tax is actually slightly morally worse than the mandate because the mandate minus tax difference is slightly negative. But as you can see, it's a very small difference. So you have market power when you're HHI. The next slide, you see under compliance and violation morality. Um, here, the difference for compliance morality is actually quite large. Um, so you can uh, see there's all sorts of evidence about congestion pricing in compliance with the uh, tax and cap than it is to pollute in compliance with the mandate. And it's somewhat not super bad, but like somewhat worse to pollute in violation of the tax or the cap and trade Sorry, so North um, kept the are lights we on the difference on compliance morality constraints in the MISO South meant that energy could not keep the lights um, on. So and you should see a bar chart. I can't, tell if, I can't tell if you can all see a bar chart, but I'm hoping you can. Um, and so, so again, transmission constraints it's, The compliance morality measure is actually so quite economically meaningful. Are, so here one, I have the agreement with whether or not the company that is polluting compliance with is morally bad. And you can see in the mandate condition that people disagree. It's not morally bad if you're polluting in compliance with the mandate. But they agree it's over 50 if you're polluting in compliance with the tax or cap and trade. So in other words, you're morally good for, complying in compli here. for polluting the in compliance with the mandate, and you're morally bad for polluting in compliance with the tax for capital one. The highest was about three point seven to one. So huge um, really, benefits compared uh, to the cost of building lines. I did this exploratory mechanism analysis, which I won't have time to get into today. Um, and I find and evidence supporting these um, expressive effects. Sorry, this is the next slide, and you can go all the way through. So MISO proved the line between 2007 to um, So I find the mediation effects through my structural equation model with expressive effect and an adequacy version. I don't find an interaction effect for tablet trade-off, but surprisingly here, over 80% of participants no basically said they thought markets of pollution were wrong. And, and so I may not just have not had variation, enough variation on that measure to, right. to see an interaction because in fact the tablet trade-off just affected everybody. Okay, you can go to the next slide. That's just my structural equation model, which I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. I have another moderation. So the expressive effect is stronger for people who trust the government more, which is not surprising. And then implications. Improved reliability. Um, you can go all the way down planning to make invest in generating market based regulations uh, didn't reduce the moral stigma of pollution. In fact, it slightly increased it for the tax, so it wasn't meaningful. Um, it was consistent uh, so with these competing sort of effects. The, the, and the, the um, incentives the company has. I think what's interesting um, about the widespread and, agreement and that the ta that I'm, markets for pollution are bad might, time, might be a reason why we continue to see the anti commodification critique because people lead with their moral emotions and then try to rationalize them. And so if you're just like, oh, icky, why is this icky? Oh, it's because of Um, that's of course just a, a sort of side note. Um, if you go to 
limitations and next steps. Um, repeated exposure might change this. This is a one-time measure. Uh, it might matter more for the, a novel when PJM has um, I used a novel pollutant, the, but maybe we have has, fixed has to give uh, ideas of pollution. But if we do, and then so we're not that worried about more, the changes the in moral stigma because our notions of pollution are relatively thick. And of course, it would be super interesting to learn how this change is really important in some populations. So environmental activists who are much more important to policy and regulated and And the next, the AEP one says, the transmission line has experienced poor performance. I will stop um, sharing my screen. So it's obviously impossible to assess, or is this line needed? What alternatives would be useful? Would a regional project meet these needs? I'm going to pass um, it over to questions. So we have like a few hands here. So the we'll next see. part of the, the transmission section looks at why the heck did FERC ultimately allow such um, basically lack of review for local projects that have, uh, when FERC was reviewing this, initially in 1998 and 2000 and later in 2011 through 2013. And in each situation, um, what I was surprised to know, we're like in sort of some Nietzschean eternal recurrence where people like me are all worried about governance and we're saying, why have we never thought about this? But it turns out we've thought about ever since we've worked with RTOs, we've, we've thought about this. So um, when FERC approved uh, the the initial PJMRTO, transmission operators initially said that any individual transmission operator should be able to veto any PJM rule at its sole discretion. And, uh, and, and, and so this just shows the dynamic in which utilities write the rule, have filing rights. They, it's not that FERC says you have to join an RTO. It tries to induce them to do so. Utilities, because they are given these things called filing rights, they actually get to write their own tariff rules. Um, and and the utilities said, well, we'll just leave if you have too onerous a view. So initially, so so it was only after the third compliance filing with PJM that um, we got to the situation we have in which, you know, as Shelley has written, incumbents have like sixty percent voting on any on the members committee, and the lower level committees are worse. Um, but that happened despite potentially even more sort of uh, utility friendly governance structures. Second, um, it was in 2007 that FERC finally allowed the lower level members committees to have affiliate representation. Uh, so what that means is that any lower level committee on PJM, uh, any member of PJM can can participate in the committee. But unlike the members committee, where it's you, you each corporate group only gets one vote at lower level committees. Um, each affiliate gets one vote. So this predictably means that the large utilities in PJM completely dominate uh, and control lower level voting. So the M3 process, which is the one that I just described, um, uh, has, has essentially no representation from anyone besides vertically integrated utilities. So it is the utility that has those weird incentives I was just talking about that actually wrote the rules that says, if you just say there are operational constraints in PJM, we'll rubber stamp the line. Um, and so I, 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 I think hopefully this, you know, conveys that the political economy dynamics of RTOs and CERTEP, the Southeastern Regional Transmission Planning Region, is arguably the worst if you want to like have a tiered view of things. Um, it doesn't even pretend, it says, CERTEP says, whatever our local utility, our 11 local utilities uh, file with us. That is the regional plan. We'll do no top level, top down planning. Um, but so we have a so 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 the idea is you know 
Um, it's very important, I think, for, for people to get energy market design right, but arguably all of this follows from the governance issues I and others have written about. And those governance issues in turn, I think, ultimately are largely, though not entirely, uh, result from the fact that um, uh, we have a funny system in which we have, because we originally treated all of these as rate regulated utilities that would propose investment plans to regulators who would authorize that, even though we've moved far away from that, the legacy of that that system in which utilities actually write the rules themselves in the first instance continues to give them power to pass uh, uh, regulatory costs onto their captive rate payers. So if anyone wants to talk about the resource adequacy things, I think that's more fun than the transmission, but it's also more technical. And I, I, don't, I don't know how much people want to talk about uh, capacity accreditation. So I think I have time for questions, but if not, Sherry, just tell me to stop talking. Thank you, Josh. Okay, so next up, Mark. Okay. So, oh, that even looks like the, the right slide deck. Um, I think I wish I, uh, you have no idea how much I wish I was I was there rather than why than I'm here and the reason why. Um, so my alternative literally is a, a root canal. Um, so here we are. Um, so I do want to note that I'm I'm speaking to you from Takaranto, and I want to acknowledge this is the uh, territory of the the current treaty holders here, who are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and I also note that they're both here in Toronto and in Kingston, we're in the territory covered uh, by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, uh, which is an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. Um, so I'm going to talk about the relations between climate change, energy sustainability, and federalism. I'm tempted, following up on Joshua's talk, to talk about electricity because I'm, I'm tempted to say, you think you have incumbency problems? Um, come to Canada. Um, I mean, we are talking a, a almost completely different universe. It was really quite striking um, where, for the most part, we're we're dealing with vertically integrated and and quite frequently uh, provincially owned monopolies um, who have complete control over over market entry, but that's another story. Um, next slide, please. No, so um, what I'm going to do today is is kind of at a formative stage, but sort of builds on on three different pieces, uh, and I'm sort of trying to tie them together. So this is this is still pro thoughts and process. Um, the first is to be thinking about normative frameworks around decarbonization and energy sustainability. Um, and this flows from uh, principally the introduction to, and of course we have a very effective adaptive camouflage effect that works here um, with the book on sustainable energy transitions in Canada, which is a multi-authored volume that we published two weeks ago with UBC Press. Um, and then applying that framework to the federal government's current climate change strategy, which which is effectively my contribution to the next edition of Canadian Environmental Policy and Politics. Um, and then also, which is the paper you, you have in front of you, which is sort of the most recent sort of stage of all of thinking this through, um, which is, is around the institutional and political dimensions of this 
and particularly through the lens of federalism. And, and indeed, what you have is, is a working version of the uh, climate change and federalism chapter for the next edition of Canadian federalism. Uh, next slide, please. This is all works in progress. Um, part of this arose out of, as we were formulating the, the Sustainable Energy Transitions book, uh, we need to think in terms of some sort of analytical and normative frame about how are we going to talk about decision-making around energy and climate change. And in the background, we were we were conscious of, of the importance of, of keeping life cycle perspectives in mind in thinking about pathways and technologies, we were we were increasingly sensitive to the the, the carbon tunnel vision risk, um, and indeed uh, flowing from a number of different sources. Part of this being uh, the Next Generation Sustainability Assessment literature, to which our, our late colleague Meinhard Dole at Dalhousie contributed greatly, and and others as well. Um, but to be conscious of of trade off risks. Um, uh, be they technical, environmental, economic, social, or political, in in formulating thinking about pathways towards decarbonization. Next slide, please. Um, where we landed in sustainable energy transitions, and uh, the volume is actually available. We we made it open access for people who want to have a look. Uh, uh, it's on the UBC Press website. Um, through various conversations with our contributors, and, and this is a group that included uh, everything from people who were uh, engineers doing mathematical modeling and writing Python code to indigenous practitioners in, in remote Inuit and Dene communities, we, we identified uh, nine principles through which we, we define energy sustainability. Don't need to go through them in detail. Uh, next slide, please. Um, these are derived from a number of different sources and literatures. As I mentioned the next gen uh, sustainability assessment. Things our indigenous contributors pointing uh, pointed us towards uh, the energy justice work around people like uh, Benjamin Sovacool, uh, Jenny Stevens stuff on energy democracy. So there was there was a combination of literature review and and conversation with our contributors group that that led us uh, to this place. Next slide, please. And we were then sort of sort of considering, you know, how do we how do we position decarbonization relative to these larger sustainability questions, and and sort of saw then because there there were you know there's often a discourse which is very focused just electrify everything, um, and we we're very clear that that we treated um, electrification as a, a subcategory of what we call this broader category of energy systems integration, um, which encompasses, among other things, demand-side measures, um, different carriers and infrastructures beyond electricity, but then also recognizing the energy piece is, is only a subset of the wider decarbonization conversation um, around, which has to include things like agriculture, forestry, land use, waste management, and indeed, the decarbonization itself um, is kind of a subcategory of, of sustainability, that that's sort of a necessary but not sufficient component. And indeed, we need to be very careful. One of the implications here is about being careful about, about trade-offs and, and, and avoiding pathways that put us into situations of, of um, in the interest of decarbonization, put us into bad trade-offs 
in relation to other dimensions of sustainability. And this, again, flows very much from the, the next generation sustainability assessment systems, thinking of a variety of different places where it work here. So that's that's kind of the normative frame that we, we as we're sort of conceptualizing these relationships between sustainability and decarbonization and energy. This is sort of where we we ended up. Next slide, please. The next stage was then to take that framework and apply it to the federal government's current climate change strategy. And the best articulation of this. Um, is through a document called A Healthy Environment and a Healthy Economy, uh, which was published in December of 2020, so now about three years ago. Um, the government's consistency and follow-through on the basic directions in this document have, have been remarkable and probably only possible in a parliamentary uh, uh, cabinet parliamentary system of government. Um, the essential elements are that there are uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. These reflect the NDCs, which are filed under the Paris Agreement. The current targets are 40 to 45 percent reduction relative to 2005 by 2030. And then there are various commitments to net zero by 2050. Um, as we discussed briefly, and I'll talk about this a bit more, there is a, a backstop carbon price federally. Um, it now sits at $65 a ton. In theory, it is supposed to go to 170 a ton by 2030. And that price is, is sort of reflects the social cost of carbon, sort of what the economists thought would be necessary to achieve the targets. We'll come back to that one too. Uh, commitment to a net zero electricity grid by 2035. A, a cap on oil and gas emissions because the, the sector where emissions are growing uh, by far the most is upstream oil and gas. Um, very extensive programming around building energy efficiency retrofits. Um, EV mandates are in the pipeline, uh, along with lots of money for charging infrastructures. Things around agriculture, waste management, what they term nature-based solutions are all sort of components here. Next slide, please. Uh, <clears throat> if you look at this from an instrument choice perspective, this this is, again, um, quite remarkable in its its breadth and its consistency uh, in terms of follow through. You've got a mix of, of uh, primary economic instrument in the form of carbon pricing, a range of, of regulatory initiatives, a phase out of coal-fired electricity already, uh, something called a clean electricity standard, which in some ways is a natural gas-fired electricity phase out. Um, clean fuel standards, EV mandates, a number of different things, a uh, number of informational things, uh, new institutions that have been created. And, and as we'll see, um, subsidy is becoming a very, very significant component of, of this mix. Next slide, please. Um, there has been an increased focus on subsidi subsidy as the primary instrument um, this is particularly apparent in, in the 2023 federal budget, and this is very much a response to the U.S. investment, uh, sorry, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the figure is roughly $80 billion Canadian in terms of, of expenditures around what's being termed a clean industrial strategy. Uh, there are various dimensions to this, depending on how you count, $45 billion for, for clean electricity. Uh, various things around clean manufacturing, uh, including 30 billion in subsidies for EV plants, uh, tax credit for hydrogen of, of uh, 12 billion, depending on how you count, 
30 billion for CCUS, a uh, pile of money for critical minerals and other things as well. So the shift in, in instrument choice here, which we'll come back to. Next slide, please. Um, so part of what we did here, at least in the, this phase of it, was just to look at where the federal government is, has been heading and where the money and other effort is going and where, when you think about that, do you run into these, these big trade-off risks in sustainability terms? Are these places where either we're, we're, we're at risk of significant losses in terms of non-carbon dimensions of sustainability, and in some cases in the high-risk category, there's very serious questions about whether these, these things actually help us that much in carbon terms either. Um, and you see here, so classified as low, moderate, and high trade-off risks. Carbon pricing at the moment, I'm probably moving into moderate trade-off risk. The big issue there, and we heard a hint of this earlier, of course, is, is the what might be termed in US terms the environmental justice dimensions of this. So the carbon price gets higher. Um, the impact on low-income households in particular becomes more and more pronounced. And the capacity of the existing rebate system, which works with the tax system, to compensate for that is is probably problemat is problematic. Um, it's not an it does not fast enough, and it's not enough. And we've had other dimensions of this too. We just had what's a back down on carbon pricing around heavy fuel oil for space heating uh, because of some particular regional impacts in Atlantic Canada. Uh, the more important part here in some ways, at least for the purpose of this conversation, is, is the high trade-off risk category um, in which I've put the clean electricity dimensions, which put an enormous emphasis on nuclear, um, potentially on large new hydro and fossil fuel with CCUS. Um, the critical minerals dimension, this relates to supply chains. Uh, there are very significant uh, landscape issues. There are huge implications in Canada's case around reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Um, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, again, deeply controversial in terms of, of both its effectiveness, but also the extent to which it, it locks in the fossil fuel industry in a longer-term pathway. And lots of conversations happening about blue, gray, and red hydrogen, for those who are familiar with the hydrogen spectrum. Uh, these are either fossil-based hydrogen or red hydrogen is, is through electrolysis uh, based on nuclear energy. Next slide. So we've sort of got a, a category of areas here where, where um, potentially very high risks of, of negative trade-offs in a sustainability context in a low-carbon or decarbonization transition. Third dimension to this is the federalism one. And here, um, what we've gone through is, is an in, just almost a complete flip in the past eight years. Um, that we started out where this story really starts, um, we'll call it 2015, 2016, um, is a position of virtual federal provincial consensus around climate change and specifically around carbon pricing. And indeed, coming out of the 2015 federal election, um, we had carbon pricing systems in place in BC, Alberta. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the Quebec, California cap and trade thing that flowed from the Western Climate Initiative, uh, of which Ontario was also a participant. 
Nova Scotia actually had quite an elaborate climate strategy as well. So we had carbon pricing in place at the provincial level in jurisdictions that covered about 80% of the population already. Uh, next slide, please. Um, that led to a formalized federal-provincial uh, consensus, something called the Pan-Canadian Framework on uh, Clean Growth and Climate Change. This is December 2016, around which there is agreement uh, that there will be some form of a backstop carbon pricing system at the federal level, that provinces who don't do carbon pricing on their own, there will be a federal backstop. Uh, I won't get into the details. There's two dimensions of that. There's a fuel charge that applies to heating and transportation fuels principally, and then there's a different system for industrial emitters, which takes more time than I have to begin to explain. Um, but backstop carbon price starting at $10 a ton in 2018, we're now at $65 a ton, and the federal backstop is supposed to be rising at $15 a year. Um, originally, the revenues are supposed to go back to the provinces who didn't have carbon pricing systems of their own in those cases. In practice, the federal government returns the fuel charge um, effectively it's a revenue recycling that translates into a tax rebate uh, that's handed out quarterly at this stage. And federal legislation was adopted June 2018 to do all this. Um, next slide, please. Uh, the bad news is that just as that legislation was adopted, the federal provincial consensus around this effectively collapsed. Uh, we had a series of elections at the provincial level uh, which led to the adoption of right-wing populist governments, uh, in many cases on platforms opposing carbon pricing. Uh, and this has led to the dismantling of carbon pricing systems in a number of key provinces that already had them, notably Ontario and Alberta. Um, legal conflicts, constitutional arguments that went to the, all the way to the Supreme Court, which ultimately the federal government won, um, but the fallout, if we go to the next slide, please, um, is that if you look at the way in which carbon pricing is now implemented as of today, um, you only have provincial systems in two provinces, uh, BC and Quebec, and also in the Northwest Territories. Everywhere else, um, the federal government has a hand in somewhere and principally in the form of the backstop carbon charge on heating and transportation fuels. Uh, next slide, please. So effectively, what we thought was happening was that the federal role would be would be effectively residual, that that the federal government would not be the primary carbon pricer it would mostly happen at the provincial level and that the federal government would only fill in in particularly recalcitrant places. Initially, it looked like it was going to be Saskatchewan and the territories where there may not be institutional capacity to do carbon pricing on their own anyway. Where we've landed now is a situation where the federal government increasingly carries the bulk of substantive climate policy implementation alone. Um, and also is carrying the bulk of the political cost as well. Because what's happened 
effectively is that the the sharing of political cost and risk that was implicit in the pan-Canadian framework in 2016 is gone. Uh, that Ottawa wears carbon pricing and and is carrying the political cost alone. It also carries most of the, the substance of other dimensions of climate policy as well. Um, clean electricity regulations, the coal phase out, low carbon fuel standards, EV mandates, an emission cap on oil and gas, which is going to be very controversial. Most of the subsidies, um, it's all landed in Ottawa's lap, as it were. Um, next slide, please. The one place, though, the provinces, and this becomes the dilemma from the sustainability perspective, um, the one part the provinces are engaged with um, has been this notion of clean industrial strategy, uh, that they're quite prepared to let um, Ottawa carry the cost in terms of, of substantive climate policy, but they're also very happy to take federal dollars um, around the themes of uh, battery and EV manufacturing. Uh, there's a couple of billion that's gone into green steel in Ontario. Um, it's hard to tell, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 billion plus committed by the federal government through the tax system to CCUS. I mentioned hydrogen already. Um, heaven only knows how much on nuclear. Um, they, Federal Infrastructure Bank just financed, a is, in, is the only financer of the small modular reactor for Ontario. Um, billions for the critical minerals component. So there's there's this sort of dilemma somewhat that the 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 part the provinces are loving are the parts of the and which there is federal positive federal provincial engagement um is precisely the areas where the the trade-off risk that we identified earlier uh both about in terms of climate policy effectiveness period but also around wider sustainability issues are are the most acute. Um, next slide, please. And this, of course, has not translated into any form of federal provincial detente around um, climate policy. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, as was the last week or the week before, we had virtually all the provinces declaring their opposition to the government of Canada's current approach on climate change and especially around carbon pricing. Um, so the there is no political quid pro quo hearing happening here. Um, so we're we're in now a position of of great political fragility. If we go to the next slide, and I'll just finish here. Um, <clears throat> we got the next slide, please. More unhappy looking uh, premiers. Um, we're in a situation now of of profound political fragility, um, particularly in the context of the current political dynamics and concerns around cost of living uh, moving very high into the, the public sort of mind. Um, you look at the polling, um, uh, clearly a beneficiary of this is our primary uh, opposition party leader, um, who has no climate strategy other than to dismantle the existing one and at the moment um, is well ahead in the federal polls. 
Um, so the political situation is now very fragile um, because unlike uh, the situation between 2007 or 6 and 2015, when we had a conservative federal government, we had very high level of provincial engagement around climate change. Um, it's not clear at all that there is any provincial leader on the climate side who would take on the climate policy leadership mantle um, should we see a change in government at the federal level. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and I'm over time too. Um, so there we go. That was covering a lot of territory. Um, but that's essentially where we landed, um, is the federal government has been bearing the political costs almost exclusively, uh, which has now produced a situation of profound political fragility around climate policy at the national level with no backup from the provincial level as we've seen in the past. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Vanessa, take it away. Thank you for allowing me to participate virtually like the other um, virtual participants. I am bummed that I cannot uh, be hanging out with you, but hopefully um, I can do it uh, via Zoom and I can learn from all of you. I want to say that even though our logo is there, Cherry is the force behind this conference, so I don't want to take um, any praise from it. And... Having said that, I I am a misfit in this panel, so I will not be talking as much about, you know, general climate policy, but hopefully um, you will be able to follow along my rambling presentation. You have already read perhaps my rambling thoughts of two somewhat connected projects. Um, so I'm going to start by the end and finish with uh, the hybrid component. Um, so... Living in Texas, another state where we don't talk about transition, it's not even considered taboo, just ignore it. Um, I am no stranger to the suburbs. And while there is a lot of literature about what cities can do as in, in environmental matters, I feel that the suburbs have received much less attention. And by some accounts, the suburbs uh, house half of the U.S. population. And I narrow my inquiry in a particular institution in the suburbs, com um, common interest communities governed by homeowners associations. I should say I had the slides, but they had mostly pictures, so I didn't want to bother Natalie, but I trust you will be able to picture a uh, suburb and what they don't allow you and the green lawns and the no sidewalks and the like. Um, so in homeowners, I, I choose homeowners associations because they have this nature that it's both public and private. Right? Some people call them your private local government. And certainly homeowners associations have more power over their residents than the local government seems to have over me. And it, get me, it got me thinking that if we have cities like Houston or private companies like Coca-Cola that are private leaders, why I had the feeling that these you know, homeowners associations which had aspects of both, this public, local, and this private, were lagging, lagging behind. The cookie-cutter image that you have of a homeowner association has lawns, uh, two-car garage, large square footage houses, and even if you set aside the miles travel in order to get to the suburbs, the picture that I am painting has nothing to do with the dense, uh, walkable, um, small footprint ideal of urban living that we have more recently. 
But the truth is that the suburbs are here to stay and they keep growing. So any effort in greening them uh, should be welcome. And homeowners associations are discouraging environmentally friendly behavior and actively encouraging environmentally unfriendly behavior. If I were to live in a homeowner association here in Fort Worth, I would not be able to have a composter and I will have to have a green lawn that is an ecological desert and perfectly trim. So what I have been thinking is homeowner associations from a negative perspective and how we could green them. And there were three potential avenues to green them. One was what I could label the market, then uh, courts, and finally um, state legislature. So in the market, I have two components. One is, and we have been talking about um, consumer preference and how they may change. So if consumers want environmentally friendly practices, they will refuse to live in homeowners associations that don't embrace them. So we will see a change. Even before that happens, or maybe because that may happen in a um, longer time frame, we could imagine a situation where environmentally friendly behaviors are value enhancing. So the main tenet of homeowners associations is that they preserve the property value of the houses in the homeowner association, right? That's what they want, to maximize that value. To the extent that solar panels increase the value of your home, and I believe no longer decrease, even though that's debatable, the value of the home of your neighbor, we should see homeowners associations being more willing to um, allow solar panels. And uh, we may or may not see that. One idea that um, someone put forward, and I am still uh, working on, Stephanie, who is in the room, was about how the associations of homeowners associations actually are pushing more for a green agenda in the same way that the associations of municipal governments had a huge role in the um you know in the push for more environmental uh, practices at the uh, local government level the second avenue could be litigation courts can control the constitutive documents of these homeowners associations and um, the regulations implementing these homeowners associations under the standard of they cannot be against public policy. And it's interesting to, I don't know what the confetti is, I'm sorry. Um, the, and it's interesting to see when does an environmental practice become an established public policy? And there are not that many judicial decisions because a lot of the conflicts in homeowners associations and that end up in private arbitration, but there are some regarding um, solar panels in the southwest of the United States and some regarding um, whether you can have different landscaping that would um, favor pollinators and the like in the northeast. So based on that and based on the interpretation of what it's a public, you know, what it's established public policy in other areas, um, I am trying to figure out when can we use that to push homeowners associations towards um, environmentally friendly regulations? And the last avenue is state legislatures. So you may have heard the idea of the ban on bans. So states uh, for quite some time, or some states at least, mostly red states, um, have banned municipalities from banning environmentally dubious behavior. So for example, Texas, 
Texas didn't allow municipalities to ban fracking. So what we are seeing with homeowners association is the reverse. They are banning the banning of environmentally friendly practices. So in some states, uh, the state legislature has enacted regula- uh, legislation that prohibits homeowners associations from banning solar panels or from banning clotheslines. And I still have not figured out what is the political economy behind a bill that allows or that uh, protects clotheslines, but there have been several in several states. Um, uh, for example, in Florida, and I find interesting, I don't know if there is something uh, into it, but a lot of the discussion in homeowners associations has been not about environmental practices. It has been about political speech, free exercise of religion and the like. So the language of rights is embedded in the discussion to the extent that Florida, when it enacted this um ban on banning clotheslines, that means drying your uh, laundry outside, it was declared a right to to dry state, which I had never occurred to me whether I had a right to dry or not to dry my clothes. But the fact is that that language um, has become part of the discussion. So, you know, as I was doing uh, this research, I also encountered the other extreme, right? These eco villages that have used homeowners association as the vehicle to organize themselves, right? And those are there are one in Ithaca in New York, another one in North Carolina, and I'm still looking for other off-grid communities um, where they try to live as attuned with nature as possible, right? But they come with a different sort of baggage, right? Communal living, um, lots of shared spaces, and the like. So they were an extreme that was interesting in itself. It could show the flexibility of the vehicle, right? Like the, the flexibility of homeowners association, but also they were not the example of the evolution that I would expect the um, average homeowner association uh, will take. But I was discussing this in a break after a conference we hosted here at AM, the Environment and I was talking with Bas Thompson, and Bas Thompson said, Vanessa, you have to drop this negative idea about homeowner associations because my homeowner association is great. We actually purchase together solar panels. We um, um, undertake all these reforms. And I said, well, Vas, you live in the Stanford faculty ghetto. How representative is that? But it gave me the sense that, again, maybe instead of saying uh, homeowners association as a challenge or as a roadblock to uh, making the suburbs better in terms of environmental um, issues, I should see them as an agent of change and where that agent of change can bring. And after, you know, when I received uh, Cherry's call for papers, I started thinking, you know, whether that was in isolation um, something that homeowner associations could do, or that whether there were other institutions that had similarities with homeowners associations that I could bring under an umbrella of this hybrid public-private in order to advance from the bottom-up um, environmentally friendly um, attitudes or environmentally friendly uh, reforms. And I started thinking what was that homeowner associations had. And it was this, you know, the basic idea is that you have property and governance that go hand in hand, right? The basic idea of using property rights in order to solve an environmental problem is that you will have governance and property um, 
at, you know, um, unified and as such, you will become a, a good steward of the, of the natural resource that you are managing. So homeowner associations offer that. And while there are other examples and maybe they don't perfectly fit this mold, this idea of, you know, property, private property, common property and governance and community involvement has other expressions. And the ones I have been looking at, and I would welcome comments about whether this idea of these modern commons, if you want, uh, makes sense under a single umbrella, or whether you have other examples of organizations from the ones that I will list in a second, um, that would be uh, very much welcome. So one example I had was community forestry. There is a lot of community forest in certain areas in the United States, and they are normally owned either by the local government or by the a community-based organization, sometimes an NGO, but the community has both um, involvement in the management and in the governance of those forests. And it's very clear that part of the benefits accrue to us all as a society, but also there are very concentrated benefits, a little bit like in the homeowner association's idea of value increasing. Um, another example, and I am sorry Josh is not here because I am sure he um, will know more about it than I do, is community energy, which is this idea of citizens owning and participating in the production of sustainable energy, which has, you know, tangible local benefits uh, beyond the social benefits that may also accrue. And they also have elements of self-governance or participatory democracy. And then the last example I have, and this one I am of two minds of whether to include it or not, because I clearly wanted to rule out public-private partnerships as contractual elements mostly, but there are these community-public-private partnerships that have been used mostly in uh, stormwater management, and they seem to have, even though it's you know normally a local government receiving private funds and partnering with a private company in order to undertake uh, these green infrastructure projects, the community seems to have more of a central role in deciding the benefits and what other um, resources or green infrastructure can be brought into the mix. So with that, I think I am within my allotted time and I will have enough time for questions. So any feedback on the initial project or on this more umbrella, very early stage project is more than welcome. Thank you, Vanessa. 